0: Talk is on the scientific books in the library of Robert Hooke. <clears throat> the diary entries of an enthusiastic book collector provide posterity with rich bibliophilic bounty. The journals of the eminent restoration scientist Robert Hooke serves a dual purpose. From the pages of his extant diaries, kept intermittently from August 1672 to August 1693, emerges the lean, hunched, pale-faced Hook, his lank, dark brown hair draped over his shoulders, his clear, hazel eyes intent upon a recent edition of Euclid, a relation of the new world, Kepler's harmonics. The Hook Journal, not only record the multiple activities of a towering scientist, but also restore the backdrop of the restoration book trade, delineating its shops and stores, its stocks and clients, its dealers, hawkers, and runners, plying their tray from St. Paul's churchyard, the Strand, to Duck Lane and Moorfield. From the purchases recorded by Hook, a notable collection emerges, holdings rich in the sciences of the present and the past, a library hitherto neglected, one most deserving of study and appreciation. Hooke's diaries reflect the personality and manifold interests of this man of genius. All the entries are laconic, seldom indicted with rhapsodic prose. They indicate that Hooke was not just a stupendous scientist bent solely upon research and invention, observation and experiment, but also a man who adjured the amenities and diversions of his age. Its society, its food, its luminaries he was a frequent habitué of the London Taverns the Bear Charles and Exchange Alley the Crown the Grecian Coffee House the Queen's Head he dined frequently with Boyle Wren <coughs> and Sir John Hoskins future president of the Royal Society he attended the Music House walked with Lord Sarum and Delamere in St. James's Park, where he paused to chat with the Duke of York. Although he constantly complained of a variety of ailments, from a gaseous gut to a whirling head, he consumed countless cups of chocolate. He attended the theater with Wren, playing three, paying three shillings for a performance of The Tempest. Later viewing, a production of Antony and Cleopatra. He passed part of an afternoon at St. Bartholomew's Fair, where he saw a fellow walk on stilts 12 feet high. He noted that the bells of London rang until 3 a.m. after the coronation of William and Mary. With his fellow academicians, he discussed the Northwest Passage, flying, the telescope, California and the River Gambia. He attempted to use a pair of China eating sticks. He punctually pursued his role as curator of experiments of the Royal Society. As surveyor of London, he helped rebuild the fire-stricken metropolis. In his free time, this most every gregarious, occasionally cantankerous scientists, searched the London bookshops and amassed a most impressive collection which reflects the depth of inquiry, the fertility of his remarkable mind. Robert Hooke was born at Freshwater on the Isle of Wight in July 1635. His biographer, Richard Waller, describes him as very infirm and weakly, very weak to any robust exercise. Left to his own devices, the child developed interests, which he was to pursue throughout his lifetime. Applying himself to mechanics, (coughs) which he later described as his first and last mistress, he made little mechanical toys, there being nothing he saw done by any mechanic, but he endeavored to imitate, and in some particulars could exceed. His future close friend, the antiquarian John Aubrey, declared that after the painter John Hoskins had visited the boy's childhood home, young Hook strove to imitate him. getting him chalk and ruddle and coals and grinds them, and to work he went and made a picture. Appreciating his son's talent, his father sent him to London, where he was apprenticed to Sir Peter Lely and the miniaturist Samuel Cooper. Hook remained with Lely for only a short time, manifesting early symptoms of his future hypochondria, he complained that the smell of paint made him giddy. His artistic career cut short. He embarked upon academic pursuits, entering Westminster School under the administration of Dr. Richard Busby, who introduced him to the delights of mathematics. Notably, geometry. According to Waller, Hooke mastered the first six books of Euclid within a week. There is little doubt that he venerated the great geometer, since his library included 28 editions of his writings. Hooke's life changed radically when he entered Christ Church, Oxford, in 1653 they're becoming acquainted with the leading scientists, the mathematician John Wilkins, the chemist Thomas Willis, and the civilian professor of astronomy Seth Ward. In time, Willis introduced the young science scholar to the most eminent of English scientists, Robert Boyle, who shortly thereafter engaged the 20-year-old student as an assistant for his chemical experiments, during his Oxford stay, Hook undertook a variety of investigations, and in 1661 published his first work, an attempt at the explication of the phenomena observable in the 25th experiment of the Honorable Robert Boyle touching the air. It was at Oxford that a group of scientific virtuosi formed their experimental philosophical club, the nucleus of the future Royal Society. With the establishment of the Society in London, Hooke was appointed curator of experiments, an office which required him to bring in every day of the meeting three or four experiments of his own and take care of such others as should be mentioned to him by the society. Later, he became keeper of the repository in Gresham College, where a horde of scientific artifacts <coughs> were preserved, cutlerian lecturer in mechanics, and professor of geometry at Gresham College. Hooke's greatest literary legacy is his Micrographia, a book which endured immediate acclaim. Referring to its publication, Pepys wrote, hence to my booksellers, at his binders, saw Hooke's Book of the Microscope, which is so pretty that I presently bespoke it. Enthralled by its contents, the diary sat up until 2 a.m reading Mr. Hook's Microscopic Observations, the most ingenious book I ever read in my life. Sir Geoffrey Kynes regards the Micrographia among the most important books ever published in the history of science. Hook's boyhood facility in applying chalk and ruddle was aptly produced Upon his appointment in October 1666 as one of the city surveyors after the disastrous fire of London, which had consumed about 13,000 dwellings, 80 churches, 24 of the company's halls, among them that of the stationer's company. The newly appointed surveyor refers frequently to his role which involved the taking of views, sights, and prospects throughout the distraught city. Hook assisted in the rebuilding of Christchurch and the hospital and bedlam in Moorfields. As a surveyor, Hook helped restore the prostrate metropolis. In his daily rounds, he became familiar with the owners of surviving shops, among them booksellers, some of whom, of course, he had known and patronized before the disaster. The book collector, Robert Hooke, eager to vary his daily routine, dropped in at a coffee or ale house, or perhaps visited a bookshop where he might find another title for his superb library, begun years earlier. The Hook Collection, at the time of its owner's demise in 1703, encompassed well over 3,000 titles, of which more than half relate to materia scientifica. The library of Robert Hooke, long neglected, is now restored to its rightful place among the important book collections of the restoration. The titles of the books, prints, and maps that the curator experiments acquired almost daily during his surveyorship and earlier rambles through St. Paul's churchyard, the Strand, Bun Hill, Duck Lane, and Moore Fields, along with the purchase of a new beaver hat, silk stockings, a bottle of claret, Virginia tobacco are entered in his extant journals. Hook died intestate at Gresham College on 3 March 1703. His library was purchased by the bookseller Richard Smith, <coughs> who on 23rd April put the collection up for public sale at the Inner Walk and Exit Exchange in the Strand. Smith apparently believed that books and ancillary material associated with the illustrious scientist would attract a larger audience, and hence prepared a catalog entitled Bibliotheca et etc., etc., etc. Copies of the catalog, priced at sixpence, could be obtained directly from Smith as well as from Mr. Teo at the General Post Office of Charing Cross, Mr. Hartley, near middle row Holborn, and Mr. Strayan over against the Royal Exchange. <clears throat> Smith's pedestrian dull listings of authors, titles, and imprints, often carelessly cited, are immediately metamorphosed when they are matched with the original entries in Hook's journals. The bibliotheca Hookiana is invested with a new aura. Its entries now come alive when they are identified as the texts hunted by Hook in his daily rounds at the shops and stalls of the West End, Fleet Dish, Ditch, Fleet's Fish Street Hill, Shoe Lane. The Hook auction catalog no longer remains another dry as dust catalog, but a glowing testimony to the enthusiasm of an outstanding bibliophile and scientist. Although Hooke had little to do with Richard Smith, this gentleman was fully aware of the stature of the late owner of the collection to be sold. In a foreword to the catalog, he accurately described the bookish activity of Robert Hooke, late fellow of the Royal Society of London, which for many years he had been on all occasions collecting at home and been assisted by his friends abroad. The late Robert Hooke may have been only casually acquainted with the buyer of his library, but he well knew the gentleman who would auction his beloved collection, Mr. Edward Millington. The garrulous John McDunton has described Millington as a man of remarkable elocution, wit, sense, and modesty. Millington had long attracted the Cognoscenti to his sales, and among them, the curator of, exp- of, of experiments. Dunton vividly described Millington's auction finesse, challenging the audience's intellect and purse. Where is your general claim for learning? Who but a sot or a blockhead would have money in his pocket and starve his brains? The audience assembled at exit exchange on 29 April 1703 for the dispersal of Robert Hooke's library could read the conditions of sale, which offered little, which differed little from those established by other auction houses or even by those today. All the books in this catalog are perfect for all we know. Purchases were to be paid for immediately Or within three days after the sale. The books were to be viewed two days prior to the beginning of the sale, and Mr. Smith promised to execute bids for all gentlemen unable to be present. The Bibliotheca Hokiana, a catalog 57 pages in length, including an appendix, lists over 3,000 items exclusive. Of almost 200 books listed by Hooke in his diaries. Since there are sizable gaps in the journals, it is impossible to arrive at an accurate estimate of the scientists holding, but one may conclude from Hooke's almost daily acquisition of books that the original complete collection approximated 4,000 works. The Bibliotheca Hookiana is arranged in 14 sections according to language and format. Latin texts in folio, quarto octavo duodecimo, English, French, Italian, and Spanish books in like manner. <coughs> Although scientific works predominate, Hook, a man of many parts, also collected Bibles, Biblio- biblical Commentaries, Ballet, and History. <clears throat> in his preface to the Bibliotheca Hookiana, Richard Smith had referred to Hook's myriad interests. For the arrangement of his subject holdings, the curator of experiments had acquired and studied texts in library methodology and bibliography. John Dury, the Reformed Library Keeper. Gabriel Naudet, Instructions for the Erecting of a Library, translated from the French into English by his fellow academician, Sir John Evelyn. In addition, book on Philippe Labbé's Bibliotheca Bibliothecarum, Johann Lohmeyer de Bibliothecus, the Sieur de Galois. (coughs) de <coughs> Represented among library catalogues are those of Pierre Borel, Heinzius, and Charles Sorel. Bibliographical compilations <coughs> by the Prussian Cornelius Arbertham include his Bibliographia Mathematica, a work of singular importance for the book collection which comprised over 300 mathematical texts. Hook had acquired acquired this volume in December 1669 from Samuel Smith of St. Paul's Churchyard. He had bought it in choirs for two shillings. At the time of purchase, it is possible that his credit was in question. Since he wrote, Smith's fake with me of adjusting accounts. Hook's bibliographies included two editions of Johannes van der Linden, Descriptes' Medicis, a work of importance for the identification (coughs) of its owner's many maladies. Hook's giddiness, headaches, nausea, phlegm, stomach pains, catarrh of the nose and throat, stiffness Melancholy. Allied with library manuals and bibliographies were texts on the history of printing and publishing biography. <laughs> Book on Jean de Lacalle, Histoire de l'Emprimerie, and the lives of the Parisian scholar publishers, The Estiens by Alma Lovine. Hook's first and last mistress, Macad lured him to the premises of the type founder and bookseller Joseph Moxon, with whom he discussed printing techniques, cutting borders and letters for a press in copper. Diary entries allude to the scientist's contrivance for printing books and the marbling of paper. Occasionally he spent time with Philip Barrett, a quasi-stationer in Moorfields, who experimented in the manufacture of ink, gilding, and dyeing? Hook refers to a visit to this gentleman to view printers' black and varnishing, which he considered very fine. Mrs. Durian nowadays proffered guidelines for library arrangement. Hook himself refers to the arrangement of his books kept in ranged and cataloged libraries, mended shelves and ranged books. Like other collections, the hook holdings were classified according to format, ranged some folios, irritated like most collectors by the elusive conduct of octavos and duodecimos which managed to slip in the loo and slide behind larger books or tumble down to lower shelves and appear to be attribuably lost, Hook contrived gliders designed to prevent an unruly sixteen mo from teetering into a dark recess. Diary entries allude to his catalogues for smaller books, which were being constantly rearranged. As his collection grew, Hook ordered from the carpenter kettle new book presses. There may be some slight speculation, however, about Robert Hooke's affection for his folios, quartos, and small books. For on Five August of 1676, he wrote, made a catalog of my books, took a vomit, which made me worse, and I slept after it and sweat the next morning. Hook instructed his niece Grace in the art of elementary binding. For her avocation, he designed a binding for frame, and his diary alludes to her binding a medical treatise, the works of the mathematician Ortred, the second volume of Pierce's China, and an alchemical work, import of Samuel Zimmermann. Trained in the scientific method, Hook studied trade and auctioned catalogs. Visiting his good friend John Martin of the Bell, he perused the catalog of the alchemical specialist William Cooper of the Pelican. At the shop of Samuel Smith, he studied an issue of the term catalog, the yearly survey of new publications, the forerunner of our very own books and prints. He spent time at Tom's coffee house reading through the catalogue of the upcoming Boyle auction, which included the library of the arms painter Sylvanus Morgan. Like the most sophisticated collector and antiquarian bookseller, Hooke preserved his auction catalogues. A diary entry of 18 August 1689 states range. Auction catalog. Hook, familiar with a large number of the London stationer's corps, was always eager to meet an outsider. Hearing that Daniel Elsevier of the great Amsterdam firm was in town, he arranged to meet him at Aldersgate. Hence, it is not at all surprising that among his trade holdings was a copy of the stout Octavo. Catalogus Librorum in Bibliopoli, O, Van Elzeviri Venales Extant. The majority of the books acquired, and so carefully housed by Hooke, were printed during the 16th and 17th centuries. The collection includes, in addition, four incunabula. Antonius Andrei the Chinese of 1477, of 1489, The Mirror of the World, printed by Paxton at Westminster, 1490, and Julius Vermisius, Venice, 1499. In his preface to the Bibliotheca of the honor, Richard Smith referred to Hooke's large, if not complete, collection of mathematical books in all languages and volumes. the aforesaid 28 editions of the writings of Euclid. The collection comprised, among others, the mathematical treatises of Tycho Brahe, various works of Cardan, acquired at the shop next to the blue anchor in Duck Lane for two shillings, Descartes' Geometry, Kepler's Logarithms, which he had taken from Mr. Pitt at two shillings, not paid, the mathematical writings of his colleagues, Orchard Wallace, and the Principia Mathematica of his greatest rival, Sir Isaac Newton. <clears throat> As a boy, Hooke had displayed a keen interest in astronomy, later becoming absorbed in the design of astronomical instruments. The Hooke telescope became the envy of English and foreign astronomers. His library included over 200 astronomical treatises, among them the writings of several of the Arabic masters. A diary entry of 13 February 1672 reads, Bought Copernicus near Tower Hill, three shillings. Actually, Hooke had acquired the second edition of the De Revolutionibus Orbium Colestium. Basel, 1566. Other notable astronomical holdings comprised four works of the Königsberg astronomer Reggio Montanus, three of Tycho Brahe, and four of Galileo. In May 1673, he noted that he purchased a copy of Galileo's Dialogues of Motion for three shillings, six Among his specialized holdings were 11 treatises by Rudolf Kepler, including several editions of his commentary on Copernicus. Although Hooke had always maintained that mechanics was his first and last mistress, he owned relatively few works in the field. The treatise on machines, of Johannes Beckler, bought for 35 shillings, the mechanical exercises of his friend Joseph Moxon, the technica curiosa of the German Andreas Schott purchased from Martin for 18 shillings, not paid. Waller wrote that several years prior to the scientist's death, he had been taken with a giddiness in his head, little appetite, And great faintness. Hook's diaries reiterate his many maladies, a lengthy miscellany of ailments. He constantly dosed himself with iron and mercury, senna, aloes, wormwood, laudanum, Dulwich water, and even accepted the theory of a Mr. Wilde that the blood of a black cat cured chilblains. The Hooke Library included over 300 texts relating to medical theory, practice, and cures, as well as some pharmacopoeia. Vanel's Treatise on Venereal Disease, obtained in Bloomsbury for fourpence, the works of the great French physician Paré, the 1568 edition of the De Corporis Fabrica of Vesalius the pharmacopoeia of the Frenchman Charis and Bauderon. In addition, he owned two treatises of the great Harvey, albeit not the first edition of The Circulation of the Blood. The writings of the Bolognese physiologist Malvighi, a copy of Plague Rules purchased from a dealer near Essex House, and John Graunt's Observations on the Bills of Mortality. At this time, it's impossible to cite the many texts owned by the curator of experiments in art and philosophy, alchemy, chemistry and metallurgy, botany and zoology, geography, travel and voyages. Hooke's journals are alive, with references to books in all these disciplines. The dealers he visited, the price... Hooke's journals are alive, with references to books in all these disciplines, the dealers he visited, the prices he paid, Robert Hooke has indeed provided posterity with a rich fabric of the restoration book world. Of the many London stationers he visited and from whose stock he bought copiously, two names are mentioned most frequently. John Mawr was printed to the Royal Society, the publisher of many notable English scientific treatises and importer of scholarly texts. Moses Pitt also published scientific books and as an admirer of books, cartographical expertise engaged him as consultant for an ill-starred project. Both men played an active role in the development of the Hook Library. Shortly after the incorporation of the Royal Society, John Martin of the Bell and his partner, James Alastry of the Rose, were appointed printers to the Society. They were to print and vend such books of members, besides catalogs and such other things, committed to In addition to the publication of treatises by Evelyn, Willis, Raunt, Mr. Spratt, and others, they issued two editions of Hooke's Micrographia. Their greatest achievement, however, was the publication of the monthly philosophical transactions of which Hooke was editor from 1679 to 1682. In addition to the publication of the Micrographia, Martin published several other treatises by Hooke. His premises at the Bell were regarded by the scientists as a center for his own bibliophilic whims. Here Hooke frequently borrowed, purchased considerable material on account, took books on approval, returning them at his leisure, like many of his professional descendants, John Martin coddled the vagaries of his brilliant, eccentric customer. Hook's diaries referred to some of his bibliophilic tricks. He purchased a book from another dealer, read it, and suggested to Martin that he exchange it for one of his publications. Nothing doing. The sympathy of the modern antiquarian must surely extend to the proprietor of the Bell, whose temperamental customer on 27 December 1677 returned seven recently purchased books. Apparently, John Martin retained that state of equanimity essential to all booksellers must optimistically hope that an enthusiastic client will remain faithful and hopefully solvent. Miscellaneous texts in mathematics, optics, and chemistry were purchased and not paid at the Bell. A copy of Vedel, the Salatatari, is described in Hooke's diary as not what he would. On 12 April, 1676, Hook reported that he had reckoned with Mr. Martin at the Bell. I took of him Getaldus de Revolutionibus and Archimedes Redivivus, at 11 shillings each. He owed me 25 shillings,
1: and I owed
0: him 21 for a book. Upon balancing the account, he owed me 4 shillings took home a book for Martin, and returned one by old, and old Early, the scientist had noted, at Martin's, Blunt's Law Dictionary, eight shillings, my price, six. Despite Hook's small bookish triumphs and Martin's financial coups, <clears throat> the collector and dealer remained close friends. On 5 July, 1680, Hook recorded Mr. Martin at the Bell died. A week later, John Martin's eccentric but loyal customer, Robert Hook, attended his obsequies. On 3 January, 1673, Robert Hook walked to Mr. Martin and later during the day, bought of Pitt, George Agricola, De Ray Metallica, eight shillings. <laughs> Although later in life, Hook was to dub Pitt a dog and a rascal, he not only patronized him as a specialist dealer in science, but also worked closely with him in the projected publication of Pitt's ambitious venture, the English Atlas. Like those of the Bell, Pitt's premises at the Angel were also a rendezvous for the London bibliophile. Hook cites numerous visits to Pitt, from whom he purchased the works of Torricelli at five shillings, a first edition of Boyle, and a copy of Leonardo's Treatise on Painting first edition for 15 shillings. If I have any giddiness or melancholia at this point, I just have to refer to the prices that Hook paid for his books. An inveterate auction buff, Hook also attended Pitt's first public sale, November 1678. There he spent nine pounds, fourteen, eight, Buying a total of 28 books, among them the works of the Dutch mathematician Steven, the writings of Vieta, Schaeffer's Laponia, Gicciardini's description of the Low Countries, Kirsch's China, and the Germani of the Dutch cosmographer Pieter van de Kier. This purchase reflects Hooke's interest <coughs> in science and geography buying preferences well-known to the business-minded Moses Bitt. As early as September 1675, the proprietor of the Angel had discussed his ambitious project, an 11-volume English atlas, with the curator of experiments. It was not until two years later that regular consultations between the two men began. And on 31 July 1678, Pitt drew up an agreement, an agreement promising Hook 200 pounds for his advice as chief adviser for the undertaking. Hook hired a corps of experts in cartography, design, and engraving. Although the curator of experiments entertained some doubt. About the publisher's financial reliability, he continued to work with his assistants and even discussed the venture with Prince Rupert. <clears throat> his skepticism about Pitt's fiscal responsibility was not unfounded. Only volumes one to five of the English Atlas appeared, the last in text alone. On 6 October 1680, the aggrieved Hook wrote, gave Pitt at Charles Coffee House a copy of the engagement. He shuffled off for more time, but promised to pay at Christmas. A brief diary entry of 22 November reads, Received from Pitt Five Pounds Five, which Two pounds five, made seven ten, gave him a quittance for so much. This was the last money Hook received of the promised 200 pounds. Little wonder that he dubbed the proprietor of the Angel, Dog, and Rascal. The books in the Hook collection were amassed not only for Martin and Pitt, <clears throat> but also through several other prominent dealers Robert Scott, Robert Littleberry, Henry Brougham of the Gun, and others. But the collector, like all bibliophiles, relished a bargain, and above all, enjoyed the hunt for a goodbye and a lucid desert around, maybe a sleeper. Hence on the prowl, He frequented the less eloquent quarters of London and from time to time sought texts in the stalls and shops of Duck Lane and Moorfields. In his analysis of the restoration book trade, John Dunton writes, it would be tedious to go through all Cheapside, St. Paul's Churchyard, Little Britain, and Duck Lane describe every man, woman, and sucking child, bookseller, auctioneer, stitcher, hawker. Although Hook and his fellow academician Samuel Pepys visited Duck Lane, neither specified the name of a single dealer in this concentrated wall of shops. Hook alludes to Duck Lane at first shop, at second shop, at third shop. The impression is given of a jumbled assortment of books sold by dealers who had met adversity, perhaps through plain hard luck, the plague, or the fire. Through an analysis of Dunton's listing of the Duck Lane denizens, the identities of several of the dealers can be established. Thomas Shrewsbury is described by Dunton as a man acquainted with all books that are extant in any language. He may justly be called venerable for his heavenly aspect, wherein gravity and sweetness are all concentrated. Upon occasion, Samuel Pepys visited his shop, the Bible, where he bore a copy of Boregine's Lives of the Saints, the secretary of the admiralty records not only this purchase, but notes that, quote, there did endeavor to see my pretty woman that I did baiser in Las Tenebras, Little while Dupuis, and did find her solar in the bookshop. Upon later visits, Samuel Pepys espied his pretty woman, Mrs. Thomas Shrewsbury. However, his passion waned, since upon another occasion he found La Shrewsbury so big-bellied that L is not worth seeing. The visits of Robert Hooke to the Bible had nothing whatsoever to do with pretty Mrs. Shrewsbury big-bellied or otherwise, Hook searched the shop for books. They're acquiring copies of Descartes' pistols at Six Shillings, Fear of Auntie's Trades, and Laotot's Cyclomafia. Hook offers the bibliophilic detective a single clue <coughs> in his search for the identity of the Duck Lane book-selling coding. He refers to the purchase of books next the Blue Anchor in Duck Lane. Thomas Sawbridge was proprietor of that shop adjoining the coffee house, the Blue Anchor in Duck Lane. Here, Book picked up copies of the writings of the botanist Charles Hughes, and several mathematical treatises of Cardano. <coughs> The eager collector mentions a sizable Duck Lane coup. Where on twenty-four August sixteen seventy-five, he purchased sixteen books, all in octavo, for two shillings sixpence—a lot—which included Bacon on Life and Death, his History of Wind, the Horological Treatise of the French scientist Arondespinet and many others. Robert Hooke certainly knew a bargain. The bookish aspects of Duck Lane are reanimated in the diary entry of 11 December, 1678, when he visited three shops, there acquiring a written map, the treatise of the mathematician Orchard, and a copy of Napier's Logarithms. If Hooke's bibliophilic thirst had not been sufficiently quenched during his visits to the first, second, and third Duck Lane shops, he could easily have slipped through Aldersgate Gate to Moorfields Fields near Moor Gate and London Wall, an area which during the reign of James I had been converted into an attractive recreation center studded with some shops and ale houses. It was in Moorfields that Robert Hooke, city surveyor, rebuilt Bedlam and during his leisure time visited its shops and stores. Like Duck Lane, Moorfields appealed to the less affluent bookseller who had also come on hard times. Their stocks, similar to those of their Duck Lane colleagues, largely secondhand and antiquary, having little appeal to the snob collector interested in a recent play and a chic novel. Hook's <clears throat> later diaries indicate frequent visits to Moorefields fields where an unsuccessful bag is indicated MF zero. Like the booksellers, and small publishers of Duck Lane, the proprietors in Moorfield, with the exception of the art specialist Robert Pryke, remain unidentified by Hook. The casual attitude of the Moorfields dealer toward his stock is suggested in two terse Hook diary entries. In MF, I saw 100 of Mr. Boyle's my Dutch books lie exposed on the rails, in other words, around the open, on boxes. Till 1130, in Moorfields, saw many of Mr. Boyle's German chemical books. The library of Robert Bult, Boyle, like that of Hook, was eventually sold at auction, but a part had apparently been purchased by a Moorfields dealer. While rebuilding Bedlam, Hook had ample opportunity to drop in at the premises of the art specialist, Robert Pryke, of the Golden Line. Pryke was the publisher of several notable architectural treatises and building manuals, essential to the architect and draftsman, occupied with the rehabilitation of London. The Bibliotheca Huguenot lists the treatises of Vitruvius, Alberti, Beckler, Francini, Moclerc, and others, some published and others carried in stock by Pride. At the Moorfield shops, he obtained technical treatises for his works in surveying. Certainly, book buying in Duck Lane and Moorfields could be pursued and a more leisurely pace than at any one of the many book auctions which had become the London bibliophilic rage. The first London book auction took place on 30 October 1676 when William Cooper sold the library of the late divine, Lazarus Seaman. book does not appear to have attended the sale, although he was well aware of it. In time, he became an enthusiastic auction buff. In his crabbed hand, he has left a memorandum of 57 auctions held in and outside of London from August 1686 to August 1689, many of which have remained unrecorded. It was the first pit auction sale. The 28 lots were knocked down to Hook, totaling 914 8 At an auction held the following June, he paid 27 and a half shillings for a copy of Kirche, Wonders Subterraneanus. This sale is pertinent for an analysis of the Hook collection, since on this occasion he purchased a lot seven letters, alas unspecified by name. One of the few references in his extant diaries to the acquisition of manuscript material. Hook was a careful auction buyer. He studied the catalogues in advance of the sales and viewed the books. Among his favorite auctions were those conducted by Christopher Hussey, held at his premises. Dunton considered Hussey a downright honest man, a gentleman who also published and sold books relating largely to stereometry, a subject of keen interest to the surveyor, Hook. Within a nine-month period, Hook attended 14 Hussey auction sales where he purchased, among others, a Hebrew Dictionary, an Arabic Dictionary, a Spanish Grammar, a Swedish Dictionary, and Milton's Areopagitic. The look, the Hook Library had been amassed by purchase from the London dealers and at the rooms of the local auction houses. Hook occasionally returned the services of an agent, favoring Dr. Pitt or Diodati, a cousin of Milton's friend Charles Theodore. This self-same gentleman enjoying close relations with the Parisian trade and it was through him that Hook obtained a set of the Journal des Savants for six shillings. Hook's delight in a variety of texts and artifacts is enthusiastically reported after a visit to the chambers of Elias Ashmole, Saw Tradeskin's rarities in Garrett, saw Dee and Keats and many other books and manuscripts that have chemistry, conjurations of Euclid, later tarrying in Boyle's residence, where he scanned a French book. Other references cite his reading shots, Technica Curiosa. Gathered with his fellow academic, academicians at one of the London coffee houses, he discussed with them daily events, some politics, personal indispositions, and books. With Sir John Hoskins at Galloway's and Jonathan's, Phil Levin, talked much. New Atlantis. The tenth of January is described as a very clear day, wind west, brisk and cold, rambled about books, bought at Pope's Head Alley, Legon's Barbados. The curator of experiments read his books carefully and wrote little nonsense with incomplete copies. Buying a copy. Quetro della travels in East India, Hook apparently after reading discovered that it was incomplete. The work was immediately returned to the auction house where it had been acquired. There is every indication that the virtuoso Robert Hook collated every book. On 10 February 1689 the States collated Salmay's By his middle years, Hooke was in a sufficiently comfortable financial position to indulge his passion for books. The question naturally arises, how did the prices paid for books compare with the cost of daily necessities and luxuries? For a copy of Willoughby's Honor for Love, Year, Hooke paid 24 shillings four more than the salary earned by his charwoman, Martha, for a period of three months. The price of the second edition of Copernicus was identical with that of a pair of gloves, two shillings. Martin demanded 30 shillings for a copy of a geographical lexicon, and overcoat ordered by Hooke from Mr. Bull, of the fox and goose amounted to 36 shillings sixpence. Today's collector enviously drools at the cost of Kepler's Logarithms, first edition, two shillings. Galileo's Dialogues of Motion, three shillings sixpence. And a purchase of 16 texts, many of scientific significance. Acquired in Duck Lane for two shillings six. The average book costs less than a daily need for luxury. A hat, hat band and lining, five shillings. A quarter pound of Virginia tobacco, nine pounds. One pair of calf leather shoes, four shillings. The reader remains slightly aghast that the scientist paid eight pounds. A copy of one book of bond. It must, however, be remembered that Hook purchased the work at one of the Maitland auction sales, and auction fever, can prove a very expensive malady. There is no doubt that Robert Hooke acquired his books for professional reasons and also for the satisfaction of his many interests, ranging from abracadabra to zoology, Hooke's library remains an index to the mind of this brilliant scientist, a man of abo- a man of abounding curiosity. His collection serves as a vade mecum to the restoration bookwork its dealers, its hawkers, its runners, its auctions, its buyers, its well-stocked shops of St. Paul's and the Strand, to the second-hand stores of Duck Lane and Moorfields. In the course of his profession, the choleric, hunched, hazel-eyed Robert Hooke traveled the streets and alleys of London, the city he loved and helped restore. In the books he acquired, he traversed the world and delved into the myriad segments of man's achievements in the past.